reflections are dimmer and dimmer year by year. That was 16 years ago we graduated from, 17 years ago we graduated from the PC together and uh, enjoyed an internship together at Covenant Fellowship. Um, enjoyed spending time with them, with, with uh, Mike and Enza Lilly. Mike and I spent a week together in Zambia a couple of years ago. Mike teaching at the pastor's college that our dear friend Will Broadchanda is developing there and uh, getting to, to spend some time getting to know your other elders last night as well. Just a wonderful time of enjoying our solidarity together. Even this morning as we're praying, one of the, uh, one of the people praying with us is saying, hey, we're sponsoring a boy named Alex in Zambia. And so I, I just feel that uh, kinship and that, uh, that brotherhood, sisterhood in ministry that we share together. So thank you for welcoming me in that way. Um, if you're with me in Luke chapter 10, let's begin reading in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, being Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. If we were to ask Jesus to describe in a single word what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, how do you think he might respond? We can't know for sure because he was never asked that question quite so directly in, in Scripture. Uh, but I think based on our passage for, for this morning, we might guess that he would say to, to describe love for neighbor in a single word, love for neighbor looks like compassion. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, I want to suggest to you that when it comes to compassion, we're a little bit like six-month-old infants. Uh, now, I'm not saying that to insult you. I said we, so I'm including myself in that description. And, and this is what I mean. Uh, I happen to be someone who's fascinated by child development, uh, especially very early child development. I remember studying that course in college and being fascinated, 
being even more, hundred times as fascinated while my young children were, were going through these phases of development and just soaking in the world around them. Language development is probably the most fascinating of all. But uh, there, are, there are games you can play to find out whether your child has reached a certain milestone in development. And uh, if, if anyone here has a child between the ages of 6 to 12 months, I'm going to recommend a little game for you. Uh, you hold a, a toy in front of that child, maybe a bright colored toy or a toy that makes some noise, and the infant just locks in on it, right? You can, you can all picture that. And, and they lock in on that. They, they, they don't lose, uh, they don't take their attention away from it. But then you quickly hide it behind your back. An infant of six months of age or so will typically just move on to the next thing to stimulate his or her attention. Um, there's, there's no continuing with that object. A child between 9 to 12 months may um, continue looking for that object after you hide it behind your back. Maybe if they're mobile, they'll even try to uh, motor around behind your back to find it because they've developed by that stage uh, what, uh, what uh, child development experts call object permanence. So object permanence is simply the, the understanding that objects continue to exist even when they're outside of our view. Prior to object permanence, it is quite literally out of sight, out of mind. Well, we are often just like infants in this sense when it comes to compassion. We haven't yet developed object permanence. When something is outside our field of vision, outside our normal daily experience, it's very easy for us to move on as if that doesn't exist. Uh, Gary Hagen, in his excellent book, Good News, of, of Good News About Injustice, um, develops from this, this idea of object permanence, he develops the idea, uh, the concept of compassion permanence, which he defines as a courageous and generous capacity to remember the needs of an unjust world even when they're outside of our immediate sight. It's my contention this morning that we must develop compassion permanence for the orphans of the world who are frequently outside of our sight in our affluent society, but whose cause the Lord has clearly called us to take up as His disciples. And as we develop compassion permanence, uh, we also need to accurately define what compassion is. Um, compassion is a, is a fashionable thing these days, isn't it? Everyone wants to say that they're compassionate. And Paul and I were just talking this morning about how hyper-politicized our, our uh, culture has become of late as well, and compassion is, is one of those things that, that uh, polarized camps would each say that they have, and of course the other side is the antithesis of compassion. I would suggest that when, when there's any kind of term like that that's up for grabs in terms of its meaning in, in our society, that's all the more reason for us to ask the question, what does the Bible have to say about this? How does the Bible define compassion? How does Jesus define compassion? And this is a very important question for us, not simply because Jesus is our moral guide and he's, he's bound to have some wise words for us on this topic, but because Jesus is himself the very definition of biblical compassion. His life and ministry, leaving behind the glory of heaven to seek and save the lost in a sin-cursed world, enduring death on a cross so that sinners could find forgiveness, this is the embodiment of biblical compassion. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to be 
100% clear with you right now. You are not about to hear a moral teaching about what it looks like to live by God's standards so that God will accept you. Your only hope, my only hope for acceptance before a holy God is through faith in His Son. Faith that, that through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, that this is sufficient for our salvation. We sang this morning, uh, oh, we sang so many great lines, but Lord, You died that I might reap what You have sown. We don't come to church hoping to learn what we, how we can sow better so that we can reap ultimate salvation from God through our own sowing. We come to hear what Jesus has done for us and trust that, that His salvation, uh, that His work on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. So any definition of compassion that doesn't include Jesus is insufficient. It's incomplete. But, as the body of Christ, saved by His act of compassion toward us, we are now called to embody His compassion in a lost and dying world. As the church, we're called not merely to make disciples through evangelism, which of course we are, but my point is we're not not called merely to make disciples in the sense of, of seeing non-disciples turned into disciples through evangelism, but we're also called to be authentic disciples in the way we live our lives, to increasingly be disciples ourselves, to love not only in word, but also in deed and in truth, to do good to all, especially the household of faith. And we're called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds as we all grow up in every way into Him who is our head, Jesus Christ. So, as, as Jesus defines biblical compassion for us this morning through this text, let's remember that He's defining for us what He is already, uh, He's defining in words what He's already embodied toward us through His life and through His ministry. And He's defining what we are therefore called as His disciples to grow up into, to mature into, and to personify as the body of Christ in our world. Um, so, with that as, as background, let's, let's catch up on our story and let's catch up on the background of our story as well. You know, this is a very familiar parable. Even f- people who are relatively unchurched are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's important for us to remember the background here if we really want to understand what Jesus is saying to us. So, let's review the background. An expert in the law has come to Jesus and uh, we're told that he is putting Jesus to the test. Now, he apparently hadn't read the other Gospels because this is a bad idea to put Jesus to the test. Uh, Anytime someone does this, Jesus just characteristically turns the table and before you know it, this guy's trying to test Jesus and we find that he's the one on the examination table and that's exactly what Jesus does here. He turns the question back to him. He says, wait a minute, why are you asking me? You're you're the expert in the law. Um, how How do you read the law? What does the law say about how one would inherit eternal life? Well, the man answers astutely. And Jesus affirms his answer. He says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus affirms his answer because elsewhere in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked, What's the greatest of all the commandments? How does he answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest of all the commandments. But interestingly, Even though he was asked for the singular greatest commandment, he's not satisfied to give only one. He says, and the second is like unto it. 
It's almost as if the, the first is not quite complete unless you couple it with the second. The second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then binding these two commandments together for all of eternity, he says, on these two commandments, all the law and the prophets depend. That's a message for another day. I can't preach that message right now, but just think about that for a second. All the law and the prophets, the the revelation of God to His people up until that point of time, depend not singularly on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, all the law and the prophets depend. So Jesus affirms this lawyer's answer. And uh, I like to think of his next statement with kind of an Old Testament Deuteronomic ring in his voice. He says to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And hearing that phrase, do this and you will live, just creates some dissonance in this lawyer's heart and because he would like to think that he has loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he knows a little bit better about his neighbor. And so he has some questions about that. And like any good defense attorney would do, he begins immediately seeking to narrow down the, uh, the implications of the law, the demands of the law on his own life. Now, if there are any defense attorneys in here, I apologize for that. I know it's your job. Um, that is what a defense attorney does. Let me narrow down the implications of the law so that my client, in this case himself, uh, so that I can say that I've kept it. And so we're told that in a, self, in, in a spirit of self-justification, um, he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Maybe if I can define my neighbor as my family, as my ethnic group, as my national group, as my tribe, maybe then I can say that I have kept the law. So in a spirit of self-justification, Luke tells us, the lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? Well, this is the question Jesus has been waiting for. And this sets the stage for Jesus to define the neighborhood, if you will, about as broadly as he could possibly define it. And in the process, he defines for us what love for neighbor looks like. And he paints a portrait that defines love for neighbor in a way that spotlights compassion as a central feature of this love. And so I just want to spend the balance of our time before I do bring you an update on the ministry of covenant mercies, um, looking at three characteristics of biblical compassion displayed for us in this parable Remembering all the while that Jesus is painting a portrait for us. Not just giving a random teaching on compassion. He's painting a portrait for us, showing us what love for neighbor looks like. Uh, that second commandment that, that, that is part of the, the double commandment on which all of the law and the prophets depend. So let's talk about three characteristics of biblical compassion. First, biblical compassion is active. It's active. Now, we often speak of compassion in terms of emotion, right? We talk about feeling compassion as if it's fundamentally an emotion or having compassion as if it's this objective thing that we can you know, put in our pocket and make sure we don't leave home without it. Um, there's nothing wrong with speaking of it in those terms. That's just the way these, these terms are, are spoken, uh, spoken out in our vernacular. Um, But those phrases don't quite do full justice to the the meaning of biblical compassion. See, compassion isn't something that we merely feel. Compassion is something that we do. Um, 
and, and I, I like to say it like this. It's a, maybe a little bit of a catchy way of saying it. Compassion is a verb. Compassion is a verb. Uh, the biblical word that, that we, uh, the biblical word as it, as it uh, appears in the New Testament um, is an emotion. So it's not wrong to think of it as an emotion, but it's a deep, guttural emotion that must result in action. Uh, we can liken it to love in this sense, right? We, none of us would deny that love is an emotion, but we would also insist that love needs to lead to action or it is not true love. It's not, uh, you know, maybe it's infatuation, maybe it's some other kind of attraction, but it's not love if it doesn't lead to actions associated with love. Well, the same is true with compassion. Uh, it's not the same thing as empathy. Empathy is a good thing. It's, it's good to be able to identify with somebody else, to put yourself in their shoes, to feel their pain, to try to experience what they experience. Um, but empathy is merely a first step toward compassion. Uh, compassion is a verb. It is something that you do. And a closer look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan will demonstrate this. Immediately after he is said to have compassion, we have a list of things that his compassion led him to do. Uh, he comes over to the man, right? In contrast with the others who passed by on the other side of the road. He bandages his wounds. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn and cares for him personally. He pays for that care out of his own pocket. Compassion, as biblically defined, always has specific action associated with it. Compassion is a verb. And, and that's not just a catchy way of making a point. Maybe you don't think it's catchy. But uh, it's not just merely a, a catchy way to make a point. Uh, the beauty of that phrase is that it's true. Uh, the, the word that is interpreted as compassion actually is a verb in the Greek New Testament. It's an action word. And it's very interesting to do a study on the appearances of those words. Uh, that word. It appears only 12 times in the New Testament. So it's not a, a frequently used verb. Um, every time, all 12 times that verb appears, it is somehow in reference to Jesus. Three times Jesus uses, uses it in parables himself, the parable of the Good Samaritan being one of them. Once, it's used by a man imploring Jesus to have compassion on him. And the other eight times this verb is used are all in the Gospels, and they are all in reference to the activities of Jesus. Now that in itself is, is instructive for us, isn't it? Most often when this verb is used by a New Testament writer, it is used to describe the activities of Jesus. And this is what I want you to remember about this point. Every time... Without exception, every time Jesus is said to have compassion or feel compassion or be filled with compassion or be moved by compassion, that statement is immediately followed by some kind of merciful action on the part of our Lord. I'm going to give you some examples. You can just jot these down and maybe during your quiet time this week consider taking a look at them and meditating on them. Matthew 14.14 14, He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Matthew 20, 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight. Mark 1, 41, moved with compassion, Jesus stretches out His hand and heals a leper. Mark 6, 34 is perhaps my favorite, if I can be permitted to have a favorite. 
Uh, Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away for a little bit of rest and relaxation. Do you remember this? They're, they're going out on a boat. They're going across the lake to get some R&R because they've been ministering to people uh, tirelessly all day long and they need some rest. Now, it, it, it's important to remember Jesus is fully God, but He's fully human, just like us, right? And, and Scripture says He's tempted in every way, just as we are. So He feels the effects of fatigue in His body. He feels the need to get away. Maybe He's tempted uh, by people who just think that He doesn't need rest and they're going to keep coming after Him. Well, wouldn't you know it, as they get halfway across the lake, they're getting close to the other shore, they see that the crowd has followed them all the way around and they're waiting for them on the other side. Now just imagine... What would, uh, what would be your temptation in that moment? Because Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are. I think my temptation would be, you know what, guys? Back out to the middle of the lake. We're dropping anchor. Let's do some fishing. We're going we're gonna to get our rest out here. Well, not Jesus. Um, the Scripture says in that moment, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And this is where he also fed the 5,000, recognizing that they're hungry. They've walked a long way, and they won't be able to, to continue on without food. So Jesus, uh, is, his compassion leads him to see them as sheep without a shepherd and teach them and feed them. Uh, Luke seven thirteen is another one. Jesus has compassion on a grieving widow and raises her son from the dead. Without exception, where Jesus is said to have compassion on people, that statement is coupled with some kind of merciful action like healing or casting out of demons, or feeding of hungry people, or raising the dead, or teaching lost sheep. Jesus doesn't simply feel compassion for people. He does something to alleviate their suffering. Jesus' compassion, biblical compassion, is always associated with merciful action. Biblical compassion is active. Secondly, biblical compassion is costly. It's costly. Now, Jesus is imagining this story, right? He's spinning a tale to make a point, so he's not talking about an actual event that happened. But we have to remember that, that as he tells this story, we have to try to hear it uh, in the mindset of, of his original hearers. And so they would have known that, uh, that this man, if he encounters a half-dead man on the side of the road and he's going to bind up his wounds, they would have known. He probably had to tear his own clothing to bind up this man's wounds. He pours oil and wine onto the wounds. These are costly items. Uh, oil would be for soothing the pain, wine for disinfecting the wound. Now, he didn't bring that oil and wine with him on this journey in order to dress somebody's wounds. He, that was probably for his refreshment later in the journey, but it was more important for him to dress the wounds of this stranger that he's found on the side of the road than to have his own refreshment later in the journey. Loading this man onto his own mule. I love the way it, it, uh, the, the text actually says he puts him onto his own animal, emphasizing the personal nature of it. Probably means he walked for the rest of the journey. Uh, he takes him to an inn where he, he not only foots the bill personally for over three weeks room and board, that's how much that two denarii would cover, but he also states emphatically to the innkeeper that I'm coming back and when I return, I want you to pass the bill on to me. I'll reimburse you 
for any additional expenses incurred. Again, the, the, he, he takes this on personally. He doesn't assume this is now somebody else's the problem. Even if he takes care of the first part, he doesn't leave the rest of it on the innkeeper. He says, I'll be the one to come back and complete this uncommon act of generosity. It really raises the question for us, are we willing to give out of the abundance that God has given us. I'm not just talking about finances, though that's part of it, and possessions. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about the gifts that God has given us. Are we willing to give of those things to express the love of God and the compassion of God to our neighbors? And are we willing to take risks? Um, there are costs we can count, and I certainly recommend counting the costs in advance and being generous uh, in a planned way. Uh, but there are also unanticipated costs that we may incur along the way that we need to be prepared to incur uh, as we uh, live our lives as compassionate disciples of Christ. Um, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho had a reputation for being extremely dangerous. It was about 17 miles in length and it wound through an area with lots of rocks and caves and, and places for uh, those with ill intent to hide out. Um, so it, th this was known as the bad part of town. This would be like saying, I'm, I'm a kid of the 80s and 90s, so you have to forgive me if this is dated, but it's like saying to us, a man was walking through South Central Los Angeles at night. Okay, immediately we think, all right, this is the bad part of town. He's in a dangerous area. He needs to be careful. Um, he, he is carrying money, enough money to cover a three weeks room and board at the local inn, He's carrying costly items, oil and wine. Many of us would call him foolish for stopping, wouldn't we? I mean, he's just encountered a man on the side of the road who's obviously been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And yet, he doesn't allow the, the necessity that he put himself in a precarious position to stifle his compassion. And we need to remember, Jesus has crafted this story to show us what love for neighbor looks like. And so this isn't a man-made ideal uh, that's been created that we're trying to, to hold up as a standard. This is Jesus' story to demonstrate what love for neighbor looks like. Now this can be a very uh, difficult for, pill for us as comfortable American Christians to swallow. And I want to read you an, an excellent quote from John Piper on the subject, though not on this text in particular. Um, Dr. Piper says, there's a mindset in the prosperous West that we deserve a pain-free, trouble-free existence. When life deals us the opposite, we have a right not only to blame somebody and some system or some system and to feel sorry for ourselves, but also to devote most of our time to coping so that we have no time or energy left, for left over for serving others. This mindset gives a trajectory to life that's almost universal, namely away from stress and toward comfort and safety and relief. Then within that very natural trajectory, some people begin to think of ministry and find ways of serving God inside the boundaries set by the aims of self-protection. And it never occurs to anyone that choosing discomfort, stress, and danger may be the right thing, even the normal biblical thing to do. I found myself in conversation with Christians, Dr. Piper continues, for whom it is simply a given that you do not put yourself or your family at risk. The commitment to safety and comfort is an unquestioned absolute. 
Being a Christian should mean that our trajectory is toward need, regardless of danger and discomfort and stress. In other words, Christians characteristically will make life choices that involve putting themselves and their families at temporal risk while enjoying eternal security. Now, there are many ways we can qualify that statement, and I think even appropriately qualify that statement. Some would say, well, wait a minute, I'm a father. I happen to be a father of three daughters, and so I'm a, I'm a husband, I'm a father. Uh, don't I have a responsibility to protect myself so that I can provide for my family? Absolutely, and, and these, uh, this challenge obviously needs to be held in tension with those very real responsibilities. But, but here's what I think. I think that we are all too good at making those qualifying statements, and we really need to let that challenge hit us. How would the Lord call us to, uh, to demonstrate our faith in Him, uh, our faith in the eternal, eternal security that He's given us in Christ by taking calculated risks for His kingdom? Um, and this is exactly what should set us apart from the world in this. Our willingness to embrace cost and risk should set us apart from the world's view of compassion. It's wonderful that everybody wants to be compassionate. It's wonderful that everybody wants to, to buy the bracelet and share the video on social media that, that makes them feel compassionate, and maybe they really are genuinely compassionate, but there's, there's a, a tendency to want to engage in ways of, of feeling compassionate that have very little cost to us. Jesus is calling us here to embrace something that's much higher than that. To see the glory in embracing cost and taking risk uh, for the glory of God. Because it can only be done by faith in the One in whom we have eternal security. I, I love, I don't want to preach another passage, but I love the way Paul talks about Christian generosity in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And uh, the, the two primary examples he gives there are the Macedonian Christians who uh, give out of their own poverty, give even above their ability and simply entrust themselves to God. And the other example of Christian generosity is Jesus Himself, who though He was, uh, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we, by His poverty, might become rich. Uh, Jesus is calling us to this kind of love and compassion that can only come from faith, that can only come from someone who, who can seek first the kingdom of God knowing that all these things all these other things that I need will be provided for me as well by my loving Father who promises to provide. Well, we must embrace an element of risk in this way for the sake of the kingdom and entrust ourselves to the Lord as this Samaritan did for the sake of expressing love for neighbor, for the sake of being compassionate disciples of Christ. So biblical compassion is costly and it sometimes embraces risks that would, that would seem foolish apart from faith. Now thirdly, the third characteristic of biblical compassion, biblical compassion is required. It's required. I love the way Jesus concludes in verse 7. After the man acknowledges that the, the, one, who, uh, the one who loved his neighbor was the one who had mercy on him, Jesus simply says, you go and do likewise. The disciple of Christ has no opt-out clause when it comes to biblical compassion. When it seems too hard to take action on behalf of that unknown half-dead man on the side of the road, Jesus simply says, you go and do likewise. 
when the actions taken by this Samaritan uh, just seem too radical, when the risks seem too great to embrace, let's remind ourselves that this is the portrait that Jesus Himself has painted for us uh, what it looks like to love our neighbor. This is not a man-made ideal. This is Jesus' portrait. And with the final brushstrokes along the bottom of this painting, He writes the words, Go and do likewise. When we're tempted to think, well, that, that sounds wonderful, but that's not the world I live in. Um, the Lord would remind us that is the world that we live in. We're not to cloister ourselves away from the pain and suffering of this world. We're not to pursue comfort and safety to such a degree that we're unwilling to take up our cross and embrace cost and risk for the sake of the kingdom. Honestly, this is where I think we get tripped up as American Christians more than anything. I I don't think any of us would overtly refuse uh, the calling to be compassionate to the suffering. But because affluence Uh, is the norm in our society and because comfort and safety are the fruits that typically accompany that affluence we can very easily live our lives unaware of a world that's groaning under the curse of sin and disease and fatherlessness simply because the normal paths of our life or the normal course of our lives doesn't lead us down those paths. We don't step outside of our homes each morning and see fatherless children scrabbling through the dump trying to find a scrap of food to eat. But this is where we need to circle back around to that concept of compassion permanence. The Lord would remind us this morning that that is the kind of world we live in, whether it's part of our daily experience or not. And it's part of our calling as His disciples to take initiative toward that need, to to not walk by on the other side of the road, but move toward that need, to move, to cross over to the right side of the road and express the compassion of Jesus Christ to the lost and to the suffering. We are living in a world that is groaning under the curse of fatherlessness. More than 100 million orphans. And through Covenant Mercies, we have been attempting to go and do likewise as the body of Christ uh, for about 16 years now. And we found much joy in uh, obeying this commandment in partnership with God's people on the ground in the developing world, many of whom are stepping outside of their homes each morning and seeing fatherless children in their communities essentially fending for themselves. As we have built partnership with them, we've done it uh, uh, with uh, what we call our Orphan Sponsorship Program as the centerpiece of our mission. Uh, Through this program, children can be sponsored for $35 a month, and we uh, we maintain their family relationships. So the children actually live within extended family homes with grandma or auntie or uncle, or sometimes their mother is still alive. So the children in our home are fatherless. Sometimes their mother... Uh, Their widowed mother is trying to take care of a number of children, and we come alongside them uh, through our partnerships on the ground in the country, and and we're able to provide some basic nutritional, medical, and educational needs in that context through local church Christians who are are walking out their faith in their own communities. Um, Well, we're at an an exciting uh, stage of our development as an organization, being about 16 years old now. By the way, we get our driver's license this year. Um, But uh, (laughs) that's a dumb joke. Um, 
Being about 16 years old, though, we, we are seeing some of the children who we began with when they were very young now come into their own as young adults themselves, graduate from the program. Some of them are going on to university, and I'll tell you about some of them later. Um, but it's exciting to see these kids coming to faith in Christ as well and having their own experience with the Lord at this age. And I want to uh, show you a video now of a young lady named Masai. Masai is from our uh, program in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And uh, after, after her story, I'll update you more on the ministry of Covenant Mercies. Just uh, Masai's deep appreciation for what some sponsor that maybe she doesn't even know has just been giving monthly to, and persevering with her through some very difficult times. Her family as well. Um, and, and Helena, I, I love having the opportunity to introduce our wonderful, competent, godly uh, staff on the ground. We are just, uh, if you would ask me, what, is, what are you most excited about in Covenant Mercies right now at age 16, uh, I would say we are at a better place than we've ever been in terms of the, the excellent, competent, godly teams we have on the ground in each area. Helena being a wonderful example of that. She's just ready to leave the 99 and go after this one uh, who's straying. And then as she just prays with her, the Holy Spirit intervenes and this girl's life is, is changed for eternity. It is, it is a wonderful thing um, that wouldn't have happened if not for a sponsor just faithfully giving $35 a month um, so that this young lady can, can receive that kind of care and support. Well, today, more than 1,300 children, we're actually up to around 1,350 children, are now sponsored through our orphan sponsorship program in Uganda, Zambia, and Ethiopia. Um, we're working in two program areas in Uganda, and then one each in Zambia and Ethiopia. And sponsors are able to provide just that basic care, which also gives uh, the, the opportunity to our staff on the ground there to mentor these kids and have an influence in their lives, uh, as Helena did in Masai's life. Well, now with a mature ministry and established programs in these four different geographical regions in Africa, um, we've recognized the, the need to invest in infrastructure that would multiply the effectiveness of our day-to-day -day and month-to-month -month care in the sponsorship program. So with the balance of our time this morning, I just want to share a few highlights on our, our ministry progress in these areas over the last year. Um, the first is, is in the area of sustainability. Um, as we intervene in our children's lives in these strategic ways, the last thing we would want to teach them is that uh, some stranger from a far-off land is just going to take care of all your needs uh, for the rest of your lives. We, we don't even want them to really view it that way with these friends in their own community, that, that, that these people are taking responsibility for their lives. Rather, we want them to understand that God has created them with gifts and abilities that they have a responsibility to cultivate and that in the future they will be able to sustain themselves and their families through the work of their own hands. So you heard about Masai studying uh, hairstyling and she's now working and she's still working in a salon in Addis Ababa. Um, and so we want to teach this lesson not only with our words, not only just hammering that message through uh, into their minds through the years, but also in the way that we operate our program. And so a few years ago, we kick-started a 40-plus acre uh, sustainable farming project in eastern Uganda, growing, corns like, uh, <laughs> growing crops like corn and peanuts and rice and, and a variety of crops that can be grown there. Um, 
and revenues from these crop sales are, are simply being re reinvested into the farm right now as we continue to expand it. We've expanded it in some exciting ways the last couple years. Uh, about a year and a half ago now, we planted 5,100 eucalyptus trees, which just grow like weeds out there. And uh, we, we use about five of those 40 acres for a eucalyptus grove. And this grove will, Lord willing, produce a revenue of about $12,000 when it's sold. You'll see these trees being used all over the country as scaffolding poles and construction projects and other uses as well. So there's a high demand for them. And they'll, they'll bring in around $12,000, Lord willing, when they're sold. And we'll use those to replace the motorbikes that our, that our staff uses uh, there to go out into the field and, and care for the children. So in ways like that, we're trying to uh, not be too dependent on donor funds from afar, but say, what can we do to raise these revenues right here on the ground. I think we have a picture. So that, yeah, that was the eucalyptus trees being planted about a year and a half ago. And here they are about a year and a half later, uh, just growing beautifully uh, there in, in, in eastern Uganda. Uh, we also launched a new poultry project last year in this, in, on the same sustainable farm. Um, the first group of chickens are laying, and we have since last fall sold more than 30,000 eggs in the local community there. So there's, there's a need for these eggs in the community. There's a demand for them. And after a couple of years of, of ramping this project up and kind of uh, incrementally growing it, uh, the projected income from egg and meat sales will be about $5,000 annually. So again, these are funds that we can generate on the ground locally and, and reinvest into the program rather than being too dependent on, on donors for that. Um, our sustainability goals, though, have always been about more than, than local revenue generation and local crop production, as important as, as those things are. Uh, in addition to that, across all of our programs, we desire to inspire the guardians of our children, those, those mothers and aunties and grandmas uh, who are caring for the children in their own income-generating efforts. And we desire our children to live out the biblical truth that God has made them to be productive, responsible, positive stewards of, of their own gifts and resources. Um, these values of sustainability are powerful weapons against multi-generational cycles of poverty. Um, but to be truly transformative, we, we believe uh, from our experience they must be coupled with high-quality education as well. And so that's why education has always been a big part of our efforts with the children as well. Now you might say, great, education is of course important. You know, make sure that they go to school. Well, the challenge is that many of the families, even two-parent families, uh, would find the, the fees that are required to send their children to school prohibitive. And so there's always a temptation to uh, just, you know, don't even try. Even if they can make it through primary school, we'll never afford the higher fees that are required for secondary school, so just forget about education. Send them to the field to scare birds away from the gardens. And, and so you see a lot of young children in sub-Saharan Africa dropping out of school. Uh, well, so we have always prioritized education for this reason. And through um, our orphan sponsorship program, fatherless children are not only given the opportunity to attend school, but they're envisioned to, uh, to complete primary school, to complete secondary school, and Lord willing, to even go beyond that. We believe this will have a ripple effect throughout their whole lives, even impacting future generations. Uh, and, and we trust that these young people, we're already starting to see it, 
Um, but we trust that these young people will grow up to be influencers in their communities, influencers in their families, in their workplaces, and their churches as well. Um, last year, because of the generosity of, of many of our donors, we were able to set aside $50,000 to establish what we're calling the Mapalo Scholarship Fund for Higher Education. Mapalo means blessing uh, in, in Bemba, the local language spoken in Zambia where we're working. And uh, this scholarship fund is meant to um, take the children who graduate from high school through our sponsorship program and give them an opportunity to go beyond that to higher education. Well, I'm thrilled to introduce you to our first class of Mapalo recipients. Um, from left to right on the top, that's William, Farai, Samuel, and Charles. And then the bottom, Mercy, Premise, Alex, uh, Alex who's graduating this, uh, this year, by the way, and Bridget. Um, this is our first class of Mapalo uh, scholarship recipients studying uh, a variety of majors such as education, law, accounting, art and industrial design, and social work. Um, we are looking forward to celebrating more and more Mapalo recipients each year, and this, we're actually presently reviewing applications. We've, we've established a committee to review applications of our, our graduates who are looking to go on to higher ed. Um, and as we review the 2018 applications, we're also in the midst of an exciting campaign that we've just launched. If you're already on our mailing list, you probably have heard of this just over the last couple of weeks. Um, between now and September 15th, a generous donor has committed to matching donations to the Mapalo Scholarship Fund, dollar for dollar, up to $30,000. So Lord willing, if we achieve that goal, we'll have another $60,000 uh, to dedicate to this fund and we'll be able to, to be prepared as the next wave of graduates uh, has an opportunity to go on to, to higher ed. Um, now we're strategically positioned to award more scholarships, um, not only through those who are able to give toward the Mapalo Fund, but also by the investment that we're making into the critical early years of our children's education. I kind of like to think of it as investing in both the supply and the demand side of that equation, right? So on the supply side, we're trying to build up this Mapalo Fund so there's sufficient funds available to give scholarships. On the demand side, as we invest in the, the important critical early years of our children's education, um, we we enable them someday to be able to be eligible to uh, achieve a scholarship and to go on to higher education. We're doing this by building and developing schools, and this gives us uh, the this makes us more able to provide a stronger foundation for each sponsored child's education. And we just believe they'll be able to reach higher and further uh, in their edu educational careers as a result of that. Um, many of you know, if you, if you recall uh, my visit here a few years ago, or if you're, if you're already a sponsor, um, you would know about Lighthouse Christian School in Zambia. Um, Lighthouse is led by, uh, or was established by our dear friends Wilbrod and Ziki Chanda in Ndola, Zambia. And we have been investing into this school, into the development of the campus for the last several years. Uh, so we've, we've gotten our second, uh, uh, second classroom building open now, and we have over 280 sponsored children now in pre-K through grade 7 receiving quality Christian education through Lighthouse Christian School. Uh, we've just celebrated in 2017, we celebrated our fourth graduating class from their grade 7 uh, classes, which is an extremely important year in their educational system. They have to take a national exam 
And uh, w whether they pass that exam or not is what determines whether they can go on to secondary school. Uh, we've also found it to be a great measuring stick to see how the, how the school is, is performing. 100% um, of the 2017 grade seven class passed that national exam and moved on to, uh, to grade eight. In the four years that we've been graduating grade seven students, 99% of the students have passed that exam and moved on to secondary. So uh, it, it, it feels like a big affirmation that the, the school there is, is doing a good job in providing the quality education the children need. Uh, Lighthouse has become a model that we are looking to replicate in the other program areas where we're working as we're able. Um, developing our own schools gives us the ability to ensure that each child in our program can learn in a, in a positive environment with textbooks, you know, with sufficient textbooks, sufficient school supplies, and competent instructors. Um, and it also provides us, importantly, with, with a Monday through Friday, five days a week, opportunity to invest into the, into the kids' spiritual development, into their character development as young people um, in a very difficult environment. Well, today... Um, I'm excited to uh, announce to you our intention to build a primary school in our Western Uganda program. So uh, really patterning this after uh, the successful model of Lighthouse Christian School. Um, oh, you're looking at the Lighthouse grade 7 class from last year right there. Um, well, we're, we're looking to, to replicate that in Western Uganda. So we were able to purchase about four and a half acres of land in Kibora, Western Uganda, um, last year, and Lord willing, we'll be able to launch operations on a new school there in the 2019 school year, if not then, certainly by 2020, um, where we'll begin with pre-K, kindergarten, and grade one, and then year by year, we'll just add one new grade until eventually we're, uh, we're serving continuously classes of pre-K through grade seven, just, just as we're doing in Zambia. Um, and we're currently working with an engineering team, a great ministry called EMI that, uh, that we found in, um, based in Uganda that, uh, on, on site planning. And just this last week, I'm, I don't know if this will excite you as much as it did me. I got this on my phone yesterday, I think. Um, this is the site plan as determined just this past week. My colleague David Mayinja has been in Uganda working with the, the team of engineers on this. And this is a mock-up of, of what the school campus will look like, Lord willing, when it's all completed. So phase one of construction, we hope, will begin this fall. And uh, if you're tuned in to us in any way, you will certainly be hearing more about that in the months to come. Now, of the eight Mapalo recipients that you, uh, that you saw photos of earlier, it is sobering to note that seven of those eight lost their parents due to HIV-AIDS. Um, UNICEF reports that of the millions of children in Uganda, Zambia, and Ethiopia who are orphans, about one and a half million of them lost at least one parent to HIV-AIDS. Um, so health care for our children is extremely important, and that's why, uh, through the support of our donors, last year, and by the way, all this is aside from the sponsorship program, so those those sponsor funds are a direct investment into the, the children's lives. These infrastructure projects we raise, we raise other funds for. Um, but we were able to launch a new medical clinic in our Western Uganda program, same program that will soon have this school. Um, we launched a new clinic about a year and a half ago. And in, uh, in the one and a half years since that clinic was opened, um, we've already recorded more than 2,700 
patient visits. So there, yeah, there's the clinic from the outside. We've hired our own nurse, and she cares for the uh, children in the program and even the, the guardians, the families of those children as well, providing services such as inpatient and outpatient care, disease prevention education, wellness checkups, which is a luxury we've never been able to have before, uh, pharmacy services, nutritional assessments, and testing and treatment for HIV and malaria. Um, so we thank God for the, the donors who've invested into our ministry so that we can create these infrastructure projects that make that $35 a month that's given by sponsors even more effective in the lives of our children. Well, last year we celebrated our 15th anniversary as an organization, and during that 15th anniversary year, I thought often about a beautiful photo from my dear friend uh, David Sachs called Genesis. Um, this is a photo that was taken in Zambia, and it was, it's featured in our True Africa photo book. I think you can probably read the words there on the wall behind our model. Um, it says, do not despise small beginnings. I've, I've thought about that phrase so much, especially in a, in a special anniversary year where we're reflecting back on our early years. Um, that phrase, do not despise small beginnings, has so much to say uh, about the lives of our children. Um, they're beginning small. The Lord has big plans for them. It also has much to say about us as an organization. We began small. We had a, a, a small sponsorship program, about 200 children quickly sponsored in, in our first Ugandan program, um, but with the help of so many, we are continuing to multiply that impact that began 16 years ago. Um, as I wrap up this morning, I, I, want to, uh, I want to read some words from William Wembo Mwape. He's one of those Mapalo recipients that you saw earlier. Uh, he, he wrote a, a letter of thanks for his scholarship that's being given to him, and um, you know, even, even the program beyond that that he's experienced through the years. And it, when I read it, it just struck me as reminiscent of Matthew 25 in many ways. So I thought I would conclude with these words. Um, I really thank God, William says. I cried in my neighborhood, but no one listened to me. I called to my neighbors because of my hunger, but no one was coming to me. I was sick in my bed, and no one could render a service. But so far from God's hands, a sponsor, a parent, came to me from a far country that's beyond the sea where my eyes could not imagine a thought. What a blessing and love God has shown me. I just don't think I could say it any better than that. William's words perfectly capture the impact that you are able to have, that we're able to have on the lives of precious children um, that that. that the Lord has given us to serve. All so that their lips at the end of the day would speak words of praise and thanksgiving to God. Thank you to those of you who are sponsoring children. Thank you for welcoming me in uh, this morning. And uh, if, if you're interested in learning more about the ministry, there's a table set up over here. actually have some profiles of children who are available for sponsorship if you'd like to uh, look at their photos and read their, their stories, their backgrounds. I'd love to talk to you about the program. We've got more information on the Mapalo Fund over there as well. But listen, whether or not you decide to specifically join hands with Covenant Mercies in this work today, may we all renew our commitment to be compassionate disciples of Christ who take action 
toward the needy and who uh, give at cost, embrace the cost uh, that our Savior has embraced for us. Amen.